Though I wouldn't have admitted it, even to myself, I didn't want God aboard. He was too heavy. I wanted him approving from a considerable distance. I didn't want to be thinking of him. I wanted to be free, like Gypsy. I wanted life itself, the color and fire and loveliness of life. In Christ, now and then, like a love poem I could read when I wanted to. I didn't want us to be swallowed up in God. I wanted holidays from the school of Christ. This is Pints with Jack, season five, episode 65. The Notre Van Gang, after hours with Philip, Natalie, and Soren. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your favorite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where together with David and Andrew, we break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. Now, back in June, we had a severe mercy month, and you might have thought you'd heard enough of it, but we have a bonus episode today. And this episode is coming out a little bit after that month. I could argue because I wanted you guys to chew on it, and then we get to come back to this great book up two weeks or a couple months later. But in reality, it is because I was a little delayed in scheduling this. And so we're going to have this coming out slightly later. And this was despite David pestering me to get on this uh, much sooner. So regardless, you guys get a second dose of a severe mercy month. And today, I am joined not by one, not by two, but three guests. And they'll be talking to us today about the author of a severe mercy, Sheldon Van Auken. We are calling us the Notre Dame gang because three of the four of us went to Notre Dame and Natalie, who I will introduce in a sec, is is spent a lot of time down at Notre Dame. And so we're all very much connected to that. So the first person I'm joined by uh, with is Vincent Philip Munoz. Philip is the Tocqueville Associate Professor of Political Science and Concurrent Associate Professor of Law at the University of Notre Dame. And furthermore, he is the founding director of Notre Dame's Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government. Soren, how do you say your last name? Greffenstedt. Greffenstedt. Thank you. I didn't want to butcher that is an associate program director for the Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government. She's a 2019 Notre Dame grad. She and her husband live in Indiana with their six-month-old daughter, who is adorable. Soren was originally encouraged to read A Severe Mercy by Professor uh, Munoz, which she then gifted to her childhood friend, Natalie, who is the final guest on this podcast. Natalie graduated from Columbia University in 2019 and then graduated from Harvard Law School very recently, and is currently very deep into studying for the bar, and afterwards will be clerking for a judge in Pittsburgh. So we are a very constitutional law-heavy crowd here, yet we're going to be completely taking that hat off and using all of that intense knowledge and intellect that you guys have, and we're going to be applying it to a severe mercy. In a book that's touched me very much, and we've all had conversations about this before, and so I'm very excited. And so welcome everyone to the Pints with Jack podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, great to be here. I'd like us to start with this before we dive into some of the main themes. How did each of you guys first come across a severe mercy? And so, Philip, let's start with yourself. Yeah, sure. I um, I was given the book by a childhood friend of mine. Um, he's now a Dominican priest, and I don't know. This was in, in the prior millennium, right? so I'm much older than the three of you. Um, I must have been in my 20s. I don't quite remember. And he just said, read this book. Um, <laughs> and it took me, I, I started it, but I didn't like it. And um, 
It's funny, I forgot it. He, uh, he had a bad track record with me because he had given me another book. Uh, I think it was called The Sheltering Sky, which involves someone losing their passport and like getting lost. And, and I was reading, reading that book in Europe when I lost my passport and got lost and, uh, <laughs> and then by all my friends. So, um, so I wasn't keen on reading any more of his books, but I finally got past the first 30 pages and I think I read it in one night, actually. Whoa. I got past uh, the introduction. That's impressive. And was this Father Dominic Legg? Yeah, this was Father Dominic, yeah. Okay. Well, so for our listeners, he I've only met him once at one of your events, but he's an incredible individual. And he heads up the Thomistic Institute, which has a fantastic podcast that dives into really intellectual conversations on the existence of God, science, faith, reason, all of that stuff. And really incredible organization that has all these chapters on college campuses. So uh, he is a very smart individual. Soren, how about yourself? So there's a bit of a, a, I guess, family tree with this book. Um, As Professor Munoz mentioned, he was given it, uh, given the book by his friend, Father Dominic. He actually recommended it to me, as you said in my bio, um, I gave a copy to Natalie and I, um, have also encouraged my husband and many others friends to read it who've then I know have passed it on to others who've read it. So in my mind, this book is, is of course, on one hand, a gift, um, that I really appreciated getting, um, but also one that really connects people and, and keeps on giving. And then Natalie, obviously, I think she just answered how you got that. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that is how it got placed in my hands almost literally. Uh, this is kind of the, the story of my connection to Notre Dame during during the COVID pandemic and uh, my last school being online. I went to Indiana and lived with Soren uh, for a whole year. And the first, I mean, maybe two weeks <laughs> I was there, Soren was already sliding me a few books that she thought would better me as a person. And they did. Uh, and this one is probably at the top of the list of, of those. And I think that was, wasn't that the period when um, Justice Barrett had gotten brought in? I, I think I came down to campus maybe, no, this was right when Ruth Bennard Ginbert had passed away. That's what it was. And we'd kind of known that. And I was on campus and that's when I met you, Natalie. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, I think we all had some cocktails right where you're at right now, Soren, at your place. And it was a lovely evening. And I, I felt blessed, honestly, to be in that company at such a pivotal time of people who very much are steeped in that area, that field. It was a fun conversation. So let's start with Philip. I'd love to hear what ended up leading you to start teaching a class on this. I mean, that's that's. And am I correct? It was like a mini series where you just you'd allocate a class or a couple classes to reading this. Yeah. So I taught a class. Uh, Soren, you have to remind me. It was your senior year. It was that 2018 in the fall? 2018. Um, and the title of the class was Human Excellence. It was actually Human Excellence in the Political Order. Uh, but the Political Order part was just because I'm in the Political Science Department. So it really was <laughs> Human Excellence. And um, I taught it because I, I think students, um, especially students who uh, go to places like Columbia and Notre Dame, um, they have narrow conceptions of the lives they're supposed to live, which is you go to college, uh, you go to law school, you then go to, sorry, you go to college. <laughs> this is just going to be a roast to me the whole time. I'm okay with it. But. <laughs> you go to college and then you become a professional, you know, you're a consultant or you can go to law school and then you're a lawyer and 
And then, you know, maybe you get married um, when you're 32 and have one point two kids. And um, it's sort of a trap that's set forth before students. And there's actually nothing wrong with that um, if that's what students are called to do. Uh, but I wanted to teach this course just to help students think uh, think about what it actually means um, to live an excellent life. And then more importantly, how would they go about pursuing or figuring out what what they're called to do? What what are what are the paths that they're actually called to do, not the ones that are laid out for them because they go to you know these elite schools that have a track that puts them in a place where they can be benefactors of the university. Not that we're just benefactors of the university. But you know, but, so I, I just a way to get students to be more reflective about their own lives. And what was it about a severe mercy that ended up making the cut for the curriculum? Well, yeah, sure. So it was, it was an eclectic class. We um, you know, we read uh, some ancients. We read, I think, we read a little Plato. We read some Aristotle. We um, read some, a lot of Rousseau. Uh, it was very interesting. Emil. We read Andre Agassi, the tennis stars autobiography, which is a phenomenally interesting read. We did that because a lot of the students are athletes. So, you know, what is the role of athletics in an excellent life? Um, I chose Severe Mercy because I wanted the students to think about marriage. Hmm. What is the role of marriage in an excellent life? Uh, and what is marriage? What is an excellent marriage? Uh, something that um, is of fundamental importance to their own happiness. And something I suspect many students, and I was just like this when I was at this student's age, um, never systematically think about. So the book was a way to get them to think about um, what marriage is. And I sort of laid out the topics I wanted um, students to think about. And then, I mean, it was so obvious that this was the book um, that would um, play that role in the course. As you went through this book, what were some of the main themes that you were trying to get some of the students to be able to understand? You know, it's funny. I just, a few minutes ago, I went back and looked at my class notes, and I have n- no notes, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and I, I, I suppose that's because the students, I mean, my real task was only to get the students to read the book. Hmm. And once they read the book, um, I just sat back and let them talk. I've taught the book a few times, or I've only taught it once formally in class, but I've had discussion groups on it with students. And it's very interesting. Like Many students love the first part, the pagan love, and they're not so sure about the second part. Um, I don't know. You have to ask Soren. I can't quite remember if any that was true of anyone in our class. But it was really just, again, getting the students to actually stop and pause and think about, wow, what is a good marriage? What does that mean? Uh, some students are very lucky, lucky to be children of very, very good marriages, and they have a great model. Um, but many students aren't. Um, you know, most of us probably aren't. But it's interesting to hear, first of all, too, that some people, anyone I've heard who hasn't liked it, tends to be because of the first third. That puts them off. And so it's interesting to hear that some people actually loved it for the first third, if you want to split it that way, and we're struggling with the second or the third part of it. Soren, so you you were part of the class. What was your experience as a student receiving this? So you received it for the first time in the class, correct? No, I'd actually read it a couple months prior in the summertime. Uh, um, but yeah, so I was in this human excellence course and 
I do remember it being the most natural and um, free flowing of discussion. And I think it, that's a testament to how digestible this book is. I mean, it's, it's just a wonderful story, very human story. Um, and one that I think is, um, well, to answer your question about how, you know, who liked what part and, and why I do remember there being a couple of students who didn't like the first section thinking that it was, it was too much like reading the same, like reading the same childhood books and, and committing each other that much to, to the love, to that, that relationship. I think my impression was that modern students, um, like their expectations are, they're too pessimistic. They don't think this is real. Um, and that maybe this was just a, a male perspective of a relationship. And since it wasn't showing both, the story didn't show both sides, maybe that meant that it wasn't real or it wasn't true. Um, I didn't buy that at all. I love the story. <laughs> I fell in love with the first part and I loved it in all of its paganness. I think it draws you in um, the the story of these these two young people. I think it's it's meant to draw you inwards and upwards, almost like a platonic dialogue. Um, and so then once we got to the second and third portions of the story, as Professor Munoz said, you know, it's a love story and it draws you in um, and it forces you to reflect on marriage and relationships. But um, ultimately, I think as many college students um, are sort of afraid to do, it it makes you wrestle with your relationship with, with God, your relationship with your family's faith, with your own faith. Um, and so uh, in that way, it can be a very useful tool, but it can also be very difficult. So I, if I remember correctly, the students who most struggled with, with the whole story, especially the second and third parts, were struggling um, with, you know, that own, those questions of faith in their own lives at that time. It's fun to hear what stuck out to different people as they read the book, because when I read this, it was at my time at Notre Dame, and I was really wrestling with the question of whether Christianity was true or not, or whether God existed or not. And so interestingly enough for me, the love story, I enjoyed that. It was, it was, uh, but that was a sub theme for me. Yeah. I really love that middle third where it was the books that they were reading. I would underline the books and I would buy the books. Mm -hmm. I love the letters to Lewis and the questions of, of different theological questions that they asked. And that really appealed to me. And now as I read it again, in, in preparation for the, the month that we did, it's like something different stuck out to me based on where I was in my journey. It's like, you have so much here from the marriage to the beauty, to the longing, to the love, to the intellectual theological side. I just think there's, there's a little something for everybody here. And so that's one of the things I really do love about this book. Um, so Natalie, Soren gives you the book. What are you, what were your thoughts on this? So when I say books to help my character development, uh, the, <laughs> what was actually happening was I was didn't know it at the time, what on a journey converting to Catholicism and more broadly just kind of coming back to Christianity as a whole, similar, like wrestling with kind of the real question is, is this true? Do I really believe this? I mean, I'd grown up with faith and that kind of stuff, but just kind of took it for granted. College falls away, you know, things like that. Uh, and so for me, I mean, I, I loved the first part. I felt kind of throughout the whole book, I was walking with Van through each of the steps in the same way that I think what he found, what is so profound about their, that pagan love and the beauty and that kind of stuff is that they're searching for something higher. It isn't just, I mean, I'm, a huge romantic myself. So I love that part too, but <laughs> it's that they're, they're, they're trying to grasp for something, 
Uh, and I think I felt throughout college kind of that need for something more than just living my life day by day. So I had kind of similarly found kind of the grandeur of nature and beauty and love and all of those things. And then that moment when he realizes it's not enough. <laughs> and uh, Sora and I talked about this a lot, uh, his image of the gap. Uh, when he starts asking those questions and you look forward and realize that there's a lot of space going in front of you, but you turn around and realize how much more space is behind you that since you've asked the questions, they demand answers and you can't go back to the way that you were living before. Once kind of that glass shattering moment, like, Oh, I mean, beauty, love, all of these things are great, but there's clearly something missing. Uh, and so, I mean, for me at that point in my life, I, you know, as it took me maybe a couple weeks, not just one night that I read it in, uh, kind of watched myself following his footsteps, the same kind of obstacles and barriers and getting past them and having very important people who love you in your life, <laughs> getting you, pulling you through those things. I'm looking at Soren mostly for this. Soren and I have been <laughs> friends since we were maybe three years old. Uh, and Soren is one of those great friends who, uh, kind of bullies you into being better. <laughs> she doesn't oh, take no. no for an answer. No, it's the best thing that you could have. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I mean, as you said, I was a law student, now a lawyer, and I love arguing and being right. And it takes someone who will actually take me head on before I'm uh, convinced of anything. So many props to her for that. That gap analogy. I remember being so incredibly instrumental in my journey because I hadn't quite got to the point. I didn't fully come to Catholicism or even to believing fully in Christianity at this point in time. I had read Mere Christianity right before this and I was like, I don't quite know if this is true or not, but this seems pretty beautiful and I'm not experiencing a ton of joy in other ways of living in life. And so there might be something here. And then I started to get to a point where I was like, oh, 60, 40 maybe. And then that gap thing, I'm like, yeah, I don't think I could go backwards. And that was super helpful. And I love that you brought up one, it's actually one of my favorite themes in here is how you mentioned how they're, they're searching for something more. And I think there's something incredible about their openness, you know, even for the individuals that struggle with that first part, like, oh my goodness, it was this over the top, just close out the entire world and just focus entirely and make the, the other, the end of everything and make that the end of their joy and their happiness. The one thing you have to give them, if even for people who don't dislike the book or that do that dislike the book, you have to give them a, a props for how much they they would always be all in on what they thought was going to bring happiness. And as that as they got new truth, they adjusted. Now, Davy took a or Davy did it much more quickly. You know, she ended up going all in, and Van was a little bit more uh, of of a journey on that. But I've always loved that how they kept searching, searching, searching and searching and God put the people in their life and the relationships and the books and the resources that eventually got them. Cause I've always been a believer that we all have our journey, but if we're genuinely searching for truth, God will lead us there. And I think Lewis actually writes that in mere Christianity. So I, I loved that part of it as well. So Philip, what were some of the things that you loved about the book? So we talked about, you know, what, what, brought you to bringing this to the students and stuff, but your own personal experience. So you're reading this at, at your time and in your twenties and. Yeah, it's, gosh, it's a long time ago. So I have to think of, think of it here. Um, also, if I can add potentially another question. Yeah. I know when I first read this book, I was friends with the Munoz family. And I remember coming to your wife 
uh, Professor Munoz coming to Jen and saying, oh, I just read this amazing book. Don't you like it too? And she was actually quite the critic, but I can't remember <laughs> why. Um, can you also remind me why, yeah, wife, what her criticisms are? My wife hates the book. We should have had her on. <laughs> I have no idea why. I mean, I think I found out when we were dating that she hated it. And I thought, you know, I think, I think I'm going to marry this woman. So I, maybe it's just better. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you never actually do you have any inkling of what it was that turned her off why she dislikes it so much yeah i, I, I really don't That's I, I have no idea i mean i know her very well but i have no idea it could be it's interesting i'll tell you one one thing i it's hard for me to remember the first time i read it um i mean there, there's sort of obvious things right it, because it's so um i mean i think i went to a, a basically a pagan college i, I I had a great time in college, but it was basically a pagan college, and uh, in Southern California, um, and the, the the pagan love part is sort of the aspiration of you know many people. I mean, it's kind of the idealized version of marriage. You're just sort of amazed that they could pay it off. You know, they could they could they could do it. Um, I remember in rereading it, I thought, my gosh, I mean, they must have been very wealthy. Like, who can afford this? you know, to do what they did. In reading it the first time, it was, um, it's not that that was my ideal. It was the first time uh, the story helped, helped me see somewhat why that ideal wasn't an, an ideal and what was not in it. I guess that's really what it, what it was. It, it, it wasn't, uh, I mean, it sounds so elementary, but, you know, I grew up in the 70s in Seattle. You know, my, my, catechism was not very good um you know that marriage is a gift of self it's such a basic concept it's not well understood certainly um so even having the right understanding of what the core of marriage is you know it's not something that necessarily um, brings you happiness so of course it does but it's it's the place where you give yourself to someone so it's really dating. I mean, that, that's, I mean, I'm sure everyone says this. You know, I haven't actually talked to many people other than the students about the book, but you know, it was her that was so um, revealing and inspiring. Now, I'll say one other thing here. In, in rereading it, I remember the part that um, I found most captivating was towards the end, maybe at the very end, when um, when Sheldon is figuring out that Davy had to be taken from. Right. I mean, that's just a perspective, I think, of someone older. When you, re- you reflect back in your life and you say, oh, I didn't understand why this was happening. But now I understand why this was happening. I mean, there's definitely a, 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 there's a reading at 25 and there's a reading at 50. And they're very different. Uh, I, that's one thing I noticed in, in preparing to teach the, the book again. I hadn't read it for 20 years or so. Um, different things jump out at you. Um, dramatically, um, I have to say that the pagan part of the book seemed so much more shallow to me upon rereading it again. Um, you know, I also have three little kids, so it just seemed shallow and far less romantic than it seemed at 25. So I don't know, maybe that's what Jen, my wife doesn't like about it. Let's go down that path a little bit. The, the taking of Davy. I had a similar experience when I read it this time versus when I read it 
at 21, I felt the first part was a bit more shallow. I, and maybe it's just as you form in your faith and the Catholic faith is just very clear on the gift of yourself in marriage. And I wasn't nearly as familiar. Actually, I wasn't really that Catholic uh, back when I was at Notre Dame, ironically. I didn't come until a few years later and uh, reading all the theological stuff. And so I felt like this time around that first third, that was something that I struggled with the immaturity of it, uh, knowing that what more of a, a Catholic marriage is. I'm curious. You mentioned that the uh, the taking of it, you know, that that jumped out to me at the very end. You know, something that's been prior to this. Actually, I don't know if you guys ever heard of Sister Miriam James. No. So, so she she's Catholic um, speaker. She wrote this book, uh, Restored and Loved as I Am, and she's a, a Catholic nun and just an incredible human being. And anyways, she writes so much about our attachments and our idols and how we need to those need to go. You know, we can't we can't take those attachments with us into heaven. And that's a big theme of the great divorce, if you guys have read that, of C.S. Lewis's as well. I mean, if you try to hold on to those things, you will not be able to go into heaven. You got they, they need to be killed before they can be raised again. And in the most extreme version of this is what you were alluding to, Philip, of of Davy needing to was more or less an idol or an attachment for for Van was getting in the way of him fully giving himself to Christ. And I'm curious your guys' thoughts on if you think God had to take her. Like it was an intentional thing where path A, he takes her and you know she's she's taken at a time when she has strong faith and is committed to God. And Van was not at that point, but afterwards because of it, he ends up getting there versus the other path where he doesn't and some other scenario happens. Do you believe he had to take her or did he use that and it was more of a, a natural cause her death was? I, I'm gonna look at ladies, uh, I, I have some ideas on this one. Very, very curious to hear what the <laughs> Natalie, you go first. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure, I guess. Well, I mean, it's hard, right, to figure out, you know, why to, you know, speak for God in terms of what is his plan. And, and, you know, it's, it's a question I've gotten from a lot of my friends, mostly here back at school who don't share my faith and things like that. Kind of that classic question, like, Oh, if God is so wonderful, why does he make bad things happen? Um, so in where I've kind of landed, I mean, bad things happen. I mean, the, the the best example from my own life is, you know, the entire COVID pandemic, you know, is the reason why I was living with, with Soren, was the reason why I came to the church, was the reason why all of these really wonderful things happened. Do I get to say that, thank goodness a pandemic happened and closed down the whole world and people died? No, I don't get to say that. The pandemic happened just to bring you to the Catholic faith. You know, I mean, <laughs> who's to say? Not me. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the thing, you know, that I keep coming back to is that, you know, these things will happen. And, but the great grace of God is that you can find good, that God gives you good amidst tragedy and both finding the good period and then choosing to elevate that is a gift and a choice, I think, in that, you know, I could sit around and mope all day that, you know, a year of law school was taken away from me or like all of these bad things happen. Uh, but the idea that then 
you get to wake up every morning and see the greatest possible purpose, goodness in it. Like, yeah, Van could have said, like, oh, God wrenched her away from me. And this is tragic and it's terrible. And I'm sure, great, thanks, God, you did me a favor, I get it, but still be upset about it. The way that he's able to accept it and make the choice to see God's good purpose in the bad things that just happen in a fallen world, I think is really, in my opinion, the greatest grace that you could find. If I could add to that, I, I think I agree generally with, with Natalie's take on this question, but I would add too that, I mean, this is a book written from one man's perspective, but one thing that the question, your question, Matt gets at is um, who was it a blessing or a, a, a curse or a difficulty for? And I think it's important to also recognize that it was a great blessing for Davy to be taken away at a point in her life of great joy, great faith. Um, that's, you know, that in itself is a great gift that, that God gave her. Um, obviously it gave great sadness to Sheldon, um, to her husband, but it's important to see, I think it's, it's, let me put it this way. It's easy to lose sight of sort of the whole picture here. And so on one hand, it was a great blessing for, Davy to to go at that time, even though perhaps didn't feel like a, f- a fully lived life to um, compared to average. But at the same time, it did also then serve um, Van in this great this great way. It was a struggle, but it it brought him to um, a better relationship. Um, I think with his wife and a closer understanding of his wife, actually, or clearer understanding of his wife after death, and a closer relationship with with God. Um, and so that's a, a sort of a, a slight addendum, uh, just as as another point in this pers- uh, perspective, in terms of um, yeah, this theodicy, this problem of evil is who is it good for or who, who is it hard for? Um, it's easy to take the sort of selfish perspective, the this the Job perspective of um, why me? Why does this have to hurt me? Why do my loved ones dying? It, it inflicts pain on me instead of focusing on. Um, all of the other goods and graces that God is working in the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I found what Natalie and Soren uh, said to be quite moving and uh, quite, quite nice. You know, I, God could have done any number of things, I suppose. It seems to me that the Holy Spirit is precisely tailored to give us exactly what we need. Um, and our task is figuring out why we're getting what we're getting. You know, what... Um, Doors open and doors close and things happen. And sometimes very tragic things and painful things happen. Um, and our task is to, to bear the suffering and then try to understand it. And, um, so yeah, I think it could have happened in any number of ways. But, um, what I, what I found so moving in on rereading it was that he came to realize that, uh, well, it was a severe mercy that this is exactly what needed to happen. It was really, the impression I had, it was really the only way he was going to come to Christ, right? that, that he was jealous of Jesus. And the only way for that scenario to be, to end was for, for baby to pass. And, um, you know, I think maybe she knew that as well. So did it have to happen that way? No, but um, it did happen that way. And that's what he needed. 
Well, and I like what you said there too of Davy was I don't know the word that keeps coming on like a co-conspirator in this, but you know she she almost recognized it, sensed it herself because I actually didn't think of this until after asking the question just now, but she offered herself up. And so to some degree, she offered herself up, asked for a year, and practically got exactly what she asked for. So you could argue God was more recognizing and, and listening to her desire, but knowing that it was aligned with his will and, and there's something there as well. So it wasn't like God just said, well, I see you too. I'm going to have to take her. I'm going to have to do this and stuff. I thought there's just something beautiful about her her role in this and just being so honestly saint-like. I mean, she was so in tune with God's will and desired to live that out. I, I like how you said that. She almost sensed it herself that that was probably needed. I always wrestle with it because I think to myself, in my own life, and this was an incredibly extreme example, but we all have idols, we all have attachments. And some of the idols and attachments are only bad because they're idols or attachments. Like a love of your spouse is not a bad thing, but if it it's raised to the point where it's competing with God, that love becomes dangerous. That's the entire Lewis's four loves. All of those loves, a love that's made a God becomes a demon. And so I think in my own life, and since I'm sure listeners think of this as well, of, of what are some of the idols or loves in your life that could be a good, but because of the way you're approaching them are dangerous because they're now making you, they're competing with the love of God or your love for God. And if you would just heal that, maybe they didn't need to be taken away, but by not healing it, you lose it completely. And it's a grace and a mercy that you're losing it, honestly, because it's the lesser of it. But I always wrestle with that in my own journey. And what are the things that I, I are going to be kind of taken away from me? Because I can't, I can't understand that they are not an end in themselves and they are not the ultimate good. I think that's where this question kind of gets born out of a little bit. At the crux of his struggle is death itself, right? As I meant, as I said before, for Davy, in one sense, that's a gift. Um, for him, it seems like a great pain, but also this, this story and just thinking about every death that we encounter, which usually um, is accompanied by great sadness, but at the same time, um, seeing death as in this book being sort of a memento mori, a reminder of our, um, of our death, a reminder that we need to put, Matt, as you're saying, put our values and our idols and our, our priorities straight and make sure that um, we ourselves are using our time, the limited time that we have well. And so every time I come back to this book, um, again, it starts with this delightful romantic love story and ends in my mind with a, re a re deep reflection on, um, on time itself and our, our, uh, our fallen nature, but also our uh, limited lifetime. Um, that, that, that in itself is also a gift despite being, you know, a book that makes me cry every single time. <laughs> What what did you guys make of that timeless theme? That's one of my favorite themes in this book. Yeah, I remember Soren like years ago mentioning Lewis's analogy of the fish in the water and fish don't care that they're wet, but we are so uncomfortable by time. And I never, I don't even think you gave Lewis credit for that. I was like, wow, Soren is so smart. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so wise. Wow, that's brilliant. I mean, maybe I just steal from just the best remembering. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, and, and I recently reread the book and I, I love rereading all books because I think all of them give you something different when you return to them. 
being a different person. Uh, but but this most recent time I read it, I think it stuck out to me even more uh, as I was. I'm constantly reminiscing about my year in South Bend, and it really was kind of that chapter of Van and Davies life when they're in Oxford and, you know, they have their studio and people pop in and, you know, it's different friends every night. That was Soren's house for a year. I mean, Matt, you were there. Professor Munoz. I'm so like, jealous. It was <laughs> the best. I mean, it was like, without a doubt, the best year of my life. It was just filled with people of great faith and intellect and love. And, uh, and so I'm always constantly, you know, wishing I could, could have that again. And kind of that itself being a reminder of, you know, the shortness, uh, you know, finite time that we experience here and now. And kind of just knowing that one day it'll be better. <laughs> one day, and there is kind of that. And one time even just sitting in, in Soren's living room and we're all, I think all just reading our own books or doing our own thing quietly all together. And I could have done that forever. It was just kind of this suspended moment in time surrounded by the people I truly love more than anything in this life. And just kind of that, everything Lewis talks about there, hitting me again in that moment, being like, aha, this, this is that, that, that moment outside of time that you realize is so deeply right and good and kind of ah, <laughs> a fish and water kind of moment. Like, this is what it's supposed to feel like. This is how, you know, our, our souls are kind of meant to live. As much as it saddens me to be away from that, it's also, you know, just a great joy knowing that that is kind of the the joy that awaits, I hope, someday. That just makes me... Reading happy. books forever. <laughs> Reading books forever with Soren <laughs> and baby Maggie. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe you look at it like... Uh... Remember the Oxford, they finished the Oxford is they, they, I, he wrote at the very end of that section, he goes, this was a season of like gaiety and friendship and intellectual conversation. It was a period of taking in and mm -hmm. a season of taking in. And then there's also seasons where you've got to give back. You've got to go out. And I had that in San Diego. I had the most incredible Catholic community out in San Diego and it was taking in, taking in, taking in. And I left that and went to New York and I'm like, why did I ever leave it? But you have to recognize there's different seasons, different eras. But I mean, that's it's 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 tough. Yeah, we all have to return to the East Coast at some point. Apparently, <laughs> it's just inevitable. <laughs> it's inevitable. What oh, I'm hearing is Indiana is heaven, and I completely agree. <laughs> you said Soren's it more like, concise I'm gonna suck than everyone I could. there. <laughs> it's always been our plan. <laughs> I see Soren opening the book right now. I feel like you're you got. I have. There. I'm not a I'm not a dog ear person, but the one um, page that I have dog eared in A Severe Mercy is this section on timelessness and not only the C.S. Lewis um, fish analogy that Natalie brought up and I uh, misattributed to myself, but also um, <laughs> he has these uh, Vonnegut has these lines about he says. Half our inventions are advertised to save time, the washing machine, the fast car, the jet flight, but for what? There is in fact some truth to the good old days. No other civilization of the past was ever so harried by time. And I, I find this, especially now as I'm taking care of my six month old baby, who's on a completely different timeline than the rest of the world, than the working world, than the academic world. Um, 
it's these amazing moments of sort of layering timelines of it really forces you to see, you know, those, again, those priorities or idols that you have, um, having to take, getting to take care of a new life. Um, and to see that also within the context of, um, my marriage and family now, uh, it's this, it's almost this emotional whiplash, but it's so good for the soul of, of, um, you know, holding a precious new life only like giving birth six months ago. So introducing to the world, introducing her to the world six months ago. Um, and then also to sort of see at the same time, um, the big picture and, you know, thinking about my own grandchildren, hopefully, um, you know, in another generation, it's this, as the fish analogy goes, it's uncomfortable. It makes you, it's like, it's too much. I can't understand it. I can't, um, I can't grasp the whole thing. And so, um, it's deeply uncomfortable, but I am forced to also sort of just give, give all of that, all, all of those confused mixed feelings up, um, with the knowledge of, yeah, of a future that is, um, that is timeless, that is eternity, but also in which that encapsulates sort of our whole lifetime, our whole selves. Um, in, as he says, you know, Davy played an organ that played all the same notes at the same time. It's just, um, again, it's beyond our comprehension, but it's ultimately beautiful. And that was an interesting part of here, how they had chosen not to have kids. And I remember being pretty shocked the first time I read it. The the Catholic faith is very strong about an openness to life. Very firm. I shouldn't even say strong. I mean, it's just very firm. There needs to be an openness to life in marriage. And that's, that's one of the, the ends of marriage is that. And that today in a lot of other denominations and even in non-Christian is more or less been lost in I was surprised by Lewis's directness of it. And when he wrote Van and essentially said, that's just not, that's not acceptable that I was like, whoa. And, and, and it was almost like that was the part of the love that they weren't able to fully experience because it was a very selfish love in the beginning. I mean, it was, it was, there was a giving of each other to the other person in the pagan side, but it was still like for the end of each other that they, they can experience like this happiness and joy and nothing can get into it. And there was a selflessness of Davy by the end, but Van, that didn't really come until after. But kids, I mean, you just brought it up, force you into like a complete utter emptying of the self. And honestly, your idols and attachments probably go away with kids because unless your kid becomes the idol and attachment, that's about the only other thing. But um, you really don't get to have a lot of luxury of idols and attachments when you have kids. Uh, I would imagine. I can't speak from personal experience. That's about right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that's the fatal flaw, right? Or the, the, the fatal, literally the fatal sin is the, I think, their deliberate choice not to have kids. That marriage had to end because it, it was, the marriage itself was internally selfish, right? And therefore a corruption in marriage. You give yourself to your spouse, but then, um, the purpose of the marriage union itself is, um, Obviously, to get to the spouses to to heaven, but to give mutually, right, to new life. And that can take many forms, of course. You know, not everyone can have kids, um, but the most usual form is you, as a couple, completely empty yourself for your children. And you know, that's what you know. Even at the end, it doesn't seem. I don't know if he ever finally understood that. You know, maybe he did. But um, you know, but the book is his 
is effectively his child. Right? The, the book is their child. Right? That was their labor and gift right, to the world. You know, God was going to get the work out of him one way or the other. To say that in a different way, I would also say that their marriage, as you put Philip, because it didn't produce any children, um, it had an end. Uh, and that, I mean, that end was both of their deaths, other than this work that he produced that has brought so many people um, to to the faith. But one of the beautiful things about marriage that um, it allows the love between the spouses to continue on past the life of just either individual spouse and their particular commitment to each other. Um, so it's actually a, a moment of eternity, at least not eternity, but another generation, a, a potential of eternity. Um, encapsulated in in one bond. Um, and I think another element that I also didn't understand fully the first time I read it as a as a young 20-something was um Lewis Lewis talks about this, but um depriving Davy of motherhood was a significant harm, or at least not a harm, but a a loss um, in their choice, their choice together to not have children. Motherhood is something that's indescribable, and um, it's like I've sort of discovered a whole identity that I that's always been a part of me, but um, I could never have li- or could never live out. And so um, that's another part where it seems like there's a hundred percent gift of self to the other in their pagan love, but um, on deeper inspection, it's necessarily limited in that you can't explore this very beautiful, very natural, deeply instinctual part of femininity of womanhood um that is that is bearing a child that was very well said do you think he uh, and natalie do you think a man ever fully grasped the point you this night uh, define fully <laughs> gonna pull the lawyer's <laughs> answer uh i mean I, I mean i think there are levels of comprehension and i think i mean i think he he tried i think even as I'm sitting here, I know I, not having children of my own, can't fully comprehend the extent to which Soren just described. But I think in the abstract, I can probably get a lot closer than he could. I mean, there is this crazy thing um, in the last couple of years, watching Soren, my childhood best friend, her older sister, my older sister, all have children for their like their first children. And watching these young women that I grew up with become mothers was just this profound life altering moment. And I wasn't even, I was just watching it happen. It wasn't happening to me. Uh, And how much that knowing that, you know, someday I would love to have children and and knowing that similarly, like Soren said, like there's this part of me that someday I might fully understand better. Uh, And for the first time, really inspecting that within myself uh, made me, I think, get a lot closer to to comprehending kind of what Davy really lost out on. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know how far Van could get. I like to think he tried to get that, but I do think that there is just this fundamental limit to how far, until you can really 
start to see even even you know seeing watching other people have children i mean cousins have kids and that kind of stuff like i mean i, I got it I'm like okay kids <laughs> cool <laughs> they weren't here before and now they are uh but but having someone so close to you like a sister um go through it is profound um and i i don't know if he would be able to reach that same point ever you just Sorry, guys. <laughs> it's just a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's sort of harsh to say, but it does reveal the depth of his selfishness. Even in his total gift of himself to his wife, um, he was taking in profound ways that he might not have even understood afterwards. And you can argue it wasn't a total gift of self, technically. Yeah. Exactly. One thing that um, Natalie's words brought to mind are that was that uh, the shining barrier. I mean, his goal, their goal together was to exclude, protect their love to the exclusion of the rest of the world, right? To to protect it um, by turning inward towards each other. Having a family, having children, I think inherently is a gift back to the world. Like it's a gift to the next generation. It, I mean, it's it, you, you can't enclose your family and make your family... Um, sheltered behind that shining barrier because there's more than two because it's that's just the nature of of children and uh, the nature of time and so I think that's a part that I don't I don't quite know if he he got at the end because he had sort of a, a paternal role towards his students and he had deep love for his friends and um, and such but again that next generation the the generation of life and how it I mean it, it forces forces selflessness in a different way you cannot compare it to the love between spouses or um, the sort of love that they tried to enclose themselves in. I didn't get the sense he grasped it necessarily by the end of the book, but I wonder, I know he converted to Catholicism after the fact and he developed a relationship with Van, um, Davy's daughter that she adopted um, or like put up for adoption. She had a child at like 16 or 17 and never, never met her in her entire life. Van and her ended up becoming good friends and developing a relationship uh, much later in life after he'd already written this book and already had gained some notoriety and he had sought her out through the adoption agency stuff. And so I would imagine he got closer, but I'm probably kind of like in Natalie's camp that I just don't think you can fully get there. Um, I didn't realize that. That's remarkable. Yes. I didn't, I didn't realize that at first either until we had an author come out and wrote a uh, biography on uh, Sheldon Van Auken himself. And yeah, so she had one at like 16 or 14, some very young age, and got put up for adoption. Is that alluded to in the book? I, 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 think, I think there's, a, there's like a, a spot or two where it's very subtle, if I'm correct. We're, we're kind of nearing the hour, but I'm curious if there's any pressing theme or thoughts on any of your guys' mind. You know, we've kind of taken this down a few different paths that you're like, hey, this 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 topic, this theme was really impactful when I read it. Uh, is there anything that, that we missed that you guys really enjoyed about the book? Well, two thoughts. One, just yeah. in general, you should just do all your podcasts with Thorne and Natalie from now on. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I'm like, this is great. Uh, it still seems to me that it's such a good book for a particular moment. Um, I don't think I see this so much at Notre Dame, but which is young people in general, this turn away from parenthood. Um, and I don't, I, they don't 
fully understand like the deepest joys that come from from you know being a in my case a husband and father there's nothing comparable you know you know and I have three very fussy kids today but you know there's nothing you can do that will be that, that will be more meaningful and uh, more life affirming and to see young people turning away from this I mean it's sort of heartbreaking they don't know what they're giving up I'm not sure if this book is the best book to convey that but maybe it is I would also draw that out though too to marriage itself because I think that um, even the sense of longing to commit to one person for life uh, that part of the of our culture is is slipping away quickly mm-hmm. um, I think people still can identify the beautiful parts of their the pagan um, love story this yeah deep um, probably not even using the language of gift but at least deep commitment for a time um, but I you know I'm a Luddite I would blame technology and um, all kinds of things for the reason why we can't grasp this, uh, can't grasp, you know, our entire lifespan and all of that. But it's, it's, um, I think it's a shame because, um, not only are we, we, uh, my generation and those younger are giving up on parenthood and, and family life before even knowing what it's about, but also not even believing, uh, you know, I talked to many students in my job and not of them, not all of them are even, uh, not all of them believe that committed marriage for life is possible or even the goal. Um, it's sort of happiness for now for as long as it lasts. Um, so I think this book, I was going to suggest to Professor Munoz, we should, we should do a reading group with our students on this book again, because <laughs> um, he's not able to teach that human excellence class every semester. As, as he said, it's, it's good for a certain time. And I think that for especially college students, um, this is one that I will continue to recommend. And in fact, my husband and I have a tradition of picking up cheap copies wherever we go or whenever they're on sale on our used book, favorite used book, book websites, just so we can hand them out to people at our <laughs> at our home as Natalie experienced. <laughs> so I would encourage anyone out there to, uh, to pick up the same habit. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, if I could just, just add, it's interesting because the book shows especially the beginning marriage as this like grand over the top, amazing thing. But I think, you know, even just the conversation that it, that it proposes and makes you think deeply about kind of what, yeah, like what Soren was saying with the, the lifelong commitment means mundane means just daily life for a really long time that you are just doing things for, others versus I think at least in my experience you know kind of the general careerism and of the academy and the professions and you know is is trying to find that that glory and grandeur for yourself uh and it'll always be the next exciting thing and it's always going to be you know climbing the ladder to do xyz crazy thing and getting your name on you know what brief or you know what have you. Uh, and update your LinkedIn. Update your LinkedIn. I need to, apparently. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, and, 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 you know, having a book that just centers marriage uh, and giving of to another and what that could look like, what that actually should look like uh, in the face kind of, of this very self-focused 
professional culture. Uh, I mean, it, it helps if you are <laughs> reading it while spending time with a couple, Soren and her husband, Ben, uh, who are, you know, deeply devoted to each other. And, and as, as, uh, and I had the good fortune of, of living with Soren right before their wedding and, and, and still spending time in South Bend afterwards and going through that really pivotal, pivotal time of her life there alongside her. Um, and and someone like Ben, who I adore, is just wonderful. One of my best friends in the world is, you know, who loves the mundane. Everything about Ben is like, you guys, I saw the tiniest little thing and it was great. It was awesome. <laughs> and it is... Uh, and Can kind confirm. Of, and, yeah. <laughs> and just kind of that amazing joy that then comes with, you know, him taking out the trash or, you know washing dishes or things like that that is what you know what marriage actually is because you actually just have to live like an adult human with another person uh you you know you don't get that in your first year of of law school no one tells you that actually what you should be focusing is not uh graduating at the top of your class and getting some swanky job um you know what's gonna matter is those mundane moments all added up all together and finding someone to share that with is going to be, I mean, again, I can't really speak to, you know, the even greater exponentially joy that comes with children added to the equation, but it's just not a narrative that I think gets told amongst most young people as they look down the barrel of their entire career, you know, like Professor Munoz said, especially at, you know, elite schools and that kind of stuff, we're just kind of all programmed to be on the same path that ever really I mean, and yeah, maybe it is the right path for you, but without having the real time to sit and think about it and discern what is the right path, um, it yeah, this book comes at a at a pivotal moment. And we've been talking about it the last few minutes from a marriage perspective. It also is with our relationship with Christ. And Davy lived it out. I really love the part when she got back to when both Burr and Van got back to the states, and he was really struggling in that year. And he was struggling because he had one foot in the camp of uh, Christianity, relationship with God, and he had one foot in his old pagan ways. And Davy was all in. And he describes it as she would be reading scripture to lead the Bible studies with the high school students. And he's like, that looks so boring. That looks so mundane. He actually used that word mundane that you use, Natalie. And she found such a beauty and a joy in it. And then she'd come back home and rather than retreating to like the old ways of now we're going to go read our poems and listen to our music. She just went back to scripture. She just wanted to be with Christ in the mundane, in, in living out and in loving him in any mundane way that looked like. And so it applies both to marriage, applies to our relationship with Christ. And I think that she, she just, honestly, she's one of my favorite characters. This is incredible. Well, excellent guys. Well, we are, approaching the hour marker. And so guys, I want to say thank you for coming on and being a part of this. This was a lovely conversation. And typically when we're interviewing an individual, they're like a Lewis scholar and we ask them if they want to advertise anything, but is there anything you guys want to advertise here or promote the lecture videos of, of the constitutional studies program? You guys have some incredible talks and lecture stuff I've, as someone who's been to a number of them in person. Uh, yeah. For listeners who want to get the constitutional side of things, people should have a, a, a 
look at our website, constudies.nd.edu. We have all sorts of lectures and videos and uh, things there. Uh, any students, uh, Notre Dame students uh, who are listening, I'm sure there's some Notre Dame students who listen should um, get to know the, the center. And Actually, I, have a, I do have a book coming out this summer. Um, oh, no way. By the time this um, podcast is out on uh, the First Amendment. Far less interesting topic than the ones we're talking about. No, no, no. That's actually would be fast. So wait, what's the name of the book? And we'll make sure we link additional notes. Because yeah, this will be coming out, I think, uh, end of August or first week of September. Yeah, it's called Religious Liberty and the American Founding. And it's about um, uh, the founders' understanding of natural rights and what that means for a natural rights approach to religious liberty and the Constitution. I can guarantee you some of our listeners will really love that book. We have <laughs> Natalie's pointing to herself. I think some are reading after, after bar studying, just light reading. <laughs> I mean, I'm always amazed. I love our conversations when we're all in person. I've loved every lecture I go to. I never had the fortune I didn't do the con studies program. I think it was just beginning, kicking off. I was there 2009, 2010, 2011. Um, but every time I go to lectures, I'm, I'm just blown away with the – like I remember going to one that was going through all was going through a number of the Federalist Papers or maybe Federalist Paper Ten or something, and and talking about the founding of the United States and why they did different things, and it's it's incredible the thought that went into creating this incredible system that we're a part of, and most people don't spend any time understanding that, and so uh, I always love that. So your book is going to be fantastic, obviously, and so I'm excited for that. I'm glad to hear it's coming out. And thank you for having us. Awesome. All right, listeners, thank you also for joining us this week. And uh, please join us next week. When will we be going? Further up and further in. Cheers. 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 Cheers.